Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Rishi Varma. Now, Rishi is the General Counsel and Company Secretary at HPE, Hewlett Packard Enterprises. And as usual, it's a great discussion with lots of learnings. A couple of highlights without giving too much away. Rishi talks about the in-house team that he's responsible for recording their time and why that's important. And you'll see it's really about making sure that the high-value work stays with the in-house team and the more routine, low-value work gets passed on or dealt with in other ways. So that's that's great. And then something I haven't heard of before, how Rishi and the legal team are using VR, virtual reality, to double down on inclusion and diversity in that order too. So that's some great listening there. I'm sure you're going to enjoy the show. So as usual, sit back chillax and enjoy the show. Hi there, Rishi. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, fantastic. Now, Rishi, you started off your career as an associate at, at several firms. You took some time then at a company called Technology Holdings India. You were a consultant and acting GC there for a couple of years. Then you spent a bit of time at Trico Marine Services. I'm going to do, ask you to do a bit of a deeper dive sure. on that because you spent time there as a president and a COO, and I think that was a $500 million revenue business. So some right. insights into that part of your career is going to be fantastic. And of course, your time now, I think you've been at HPE, Hewlett Packard Enterprises for the last eight years or so. And of course, now right. currently is GC and Corporate Secretary. So not a bad career if I, if I have to say so myself, Rishi. So take us through some of the highlights, a bit of the, the Rishi Varma story, if you can. Sure. We'd love to hear about that. Yeah. And so, yeah, thanks. You know, starting out my career in New York as an associate, I think I was doing what every fresh out of law school associate does, which is just learning by drinking from a fire hose and yep, yep. absorbing. And billing yeah. 22 out of the 24 <laughs> no, there hours, you go. of course. Yeah, <laughs> learning learning how to sleep in my office and get yep. as much work done as possible. But, you know, something started to click in my own head when I was uh, an associate at Brobeck, which was most of our clients at that time, so this is the late 90s, early 2000s. And a lot of our clients were just in that first tech bubble, yep. thinking about what what the technology sector might look like and you know how the internet will play a role. But from a legal perspective, so much of what I ended up doing was really being acting in-house counsel for yep. a lot of those clients because they were you know, two to three people with a business plan and $10 million of seed money. So they didn't have office space. They didn't know what it was like to have board meetings. They didn't understand what stock options were or, yeah. or the like. And so really it started in my own head thinking about, you know, what does it mean to grow a company and, and what sort of unique skill sets might I bring to that table? And so that's when I started thinking more about what I wanted to do with my legal background, which was obviously do as much as I can to provide that legal support, but really think about the whole picture. Think about everything a company needs to do to win in the marketplace. Yeah. And so that was kind of the first time I really felt something trigger in terms of what do I want to do when I grow up? And that did trigger a decision my wife and I made to relocate from New York to Houston. And at the time, and then I went in-house to a, a company, uh, 
you hadn't mentioned them, but there was a small freight forwarder company called EGL. Right. I first joined when I moved to Houston and I served as their in-house counsel. But over, over the period of my time there, I worked very closely with the CFO. And in fact, um, he used to take me on a lot of the roadshows to talk to analysts and shareholders about the company. And I'll never forget sitting in one of our analyst luncheons where he was about to speak and he turned to me and he said, you're up. And I said, what do you yeah. mean? He said, well, I'm not, I'm not going to do this one today. You're going to do it. You've seen me do it a thousand times before. I think you can. And here he is, the CFO of a publicly traded company. And he's in, you know, relying on me to deliver the story to a room full of analysts that could easily tell a story that can make us go sideways. And I yep. think he just had that kind of confidence in me. So just as much as that trigger went off in New York about what it meant to be part of a whole company, really working with this CFO got me thinking more about what you do when you have potential and how that will shape your own career. And it, it sort of gave me the confidence to do more in my own careers, which as you mentioned at Trico, you know, when offered the opportunity to lead the business, had I not had that experience before, I think I may have shied away from it and said, no, no, I'm just a lawyer. Go find yeah. somebody else that can do it. But he really taught me how potential is really, you know, what you want in your organization is high potential, high performing people. So, so Rishi, that's, that's pretty unusual. I'm not sure what attracted you to the CFO or the CFO to you to take you under his wing, but to, to get that kind of business exposure and then, of course, to take that to the role you pl played at Trico, that is pretty yeah. unusual in the career of a GC. Tell me a little bit about what that has taught you. Sure. Yeah. And how that perhaps made you a better better GC? Yeah, well, I hope it's made me a better GC. Um, yeah. You know, it, it is unusual, but I think when you when you take a step back and you think about all of the elements that create a successful working environment, you often want as many, you know, as much input on as many different work streams as possible. Whether it's a large transaction, a huge separation, which we did um, in 2014-15 here. Yep or you know, major divestitures or the like, you want as much knowledge in the room as possible to make sure that it's as, as successful as possible. What the CFO saw in me was probably somebody with a legal background that thinks about the risks that we're approaching a little differently than right. you know, the CEO does. And, and maybe that balance is needed and that balance will help us be more successful as we execute on large projects, commercial transactions, meet with shareholders, et cetera. So for me, it, it sort of had me thinking about what are the skill sets around, you know, what's the diversity of thought that you want around the table? And you want people that can offer a different view of the same situation based on the knowledge that they bring to that table, whether that's your tax person, your controller, your yep. general counsel, everybody has a different lens through which they view that particular situation. But the more input you get, the better informed you are about what lies ahead. And I think you can execute in a much more predictable manner and you can anticipate some of the roadblocks that may come down the way. So it, it has taught me to both constantly seek input from a variety of sources, never sort of assuming that I don't need to hear from so-and-so because this is a legal matter or it's yeah. a business decision. So the lawyer doesn't need to, uh, to chime in. And I think that's been an important evolution of my own learning, but it's also been an evolution of how I 
hopefully develop the legal professionals in our department. So it sounds like well, one of the questions I often ask is, you know, talk to me about kind of crossroads and turning points, influencing factors in the career. It certainly sounds like that example that you gave us when the, the CFO said, you're up, Rishi, <laughs> is, is one of them. Yeah. Can, can you take us through any others that, that yeah. you find, you, that looking back as pivotal or, or, or a crossroad for you? Yeah, I think... You know, I, I did mention one was sort of the decision to go in-house when, when we moved from New York to Texas. Uh, yeah, New York to Texas. That decision was sort of an inflection point in my own legal career of what, what did I want or what did I expect yep. out of my own legal career? And then I would say the move to Hewlett-Packard um, back in 2013, for me, that was sort of a making the jump to prime time yep. in my own legal career. It was I, I loved what I was doing in my career at the time, but could I do it at scale? Could I do it for a company that has been used to being on the front page of the Wall Street Journal or when there are issues, they, they are very public or when there are things that we need to disclose, they are very public. And so to me, that was a, biggest, a big inflection point of can I, can I take what I love to do? Can I take what I think I do well and do it at scale? And, and tell me, what have you learned you reckon about yourself that since that point, let's say, since joining Hewlett Packard at the time, two thousand thirteen or so, between, between that and then and now, tell me what you think you've learned. Yeah, so uh, I've learned that I can. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, that, but, and that's uh, the most important. That's the most important. The, I yeah. tell you, the the I can. Right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's self-belief. And, you know, and I'll, and I'll tell you, it's a little bit of a sports analogy, but I've learned that I'm far more valuable to the organization in terms of the talent that I develop than I am for just being myself. So yep. none of us should ever think that we are so, so irreplaceable that, uh, you know, the company could not survive without us. But when people see kind of a family tree of talent that I have helped to develop through the legal department, whether they've gone on to the business or they have continued in my department and they've been very successful at, you know, delivering key wins for the business, et cetera, you're suddenly far more valuable to an organization yeah. because they see the ability to maximize what you do because you can expand it exponentially. You can grow the department, you can grow the legal sort resources with the expectations of really, you know, the business is the North Star and how do you deliver and win for the business. So I've, I've really learned how it's so important to not just attract and retain your talent, but really develop it along the way. Tell us a little bit about the how on that, on the team building. How do you create build, yeah. mentor, the A-team, what are you looking for? You know, what are the fundamentals that you think need to be in place? Because in a sense, in, in all our careers, that's that's what we think about and that's what we always look back on, those team, the, the, the yeah. best teams that we worked together with. How do, how do you think about that? Yeah, so I, I think first and foremost, I look for people who want to win and, and I'm, I'm a fairly competitive person. Yeah. And so I, I think about when this company wins, it's better for all of us. But I really want people in my department that want to understand how we win and how the legal department uh, makes an impact in, that, in the ability to do so. And so by that, I need people who want to be here because they want to know this company better than any outside counsel can. Yeah. And they want to understand the technology, they want to understand the strategy, and they want to implement in, in each and every facet of our strategy. So I look for people who are, who are thinking about in-house, not as plan B, but really as their first choice. And, and people who are coming here because they want to be a part of something that grows and, and want to be a part of that winning team. 
and and I also look for people who are a little bit more innovative than you know a tr your traditional legal path. And oftentimes that can be, you know, people who want to be part of a tech company tend to be a little geekier with their technological yeah. skills and and like to do things from a technology perspective. But it can also be people who have found ways to be more efficient by thinking through. What are the things that they do on a routine manner and how can we automate those and then turn, you know, to more complex related issues within the company. So people who have thought through those kinds of things and when they get here, they want to be, you know, they don't want to get here just to pick up the phone and call outside counsel. They want to get here because they believe they can know this company better than anybody. Yep. And then on the mentoring side, something obviously that you're passionate about, how do you think about that and what are the steps for your team that you put in place, you know, mentoring buddy systems or, or yeah. what, you know, those kind of career path impacts that you have on people. Tell, tell me a bit yeah. about that. So, so I think it starts with structurally, and, and I say this to everybody in my team, and I say this to my direct reports, and we sort of instill it into our talent reviews. But everybody in our department, whether you're a legal professional, an attorney, administrative professional, what have you, everybody should know the answer to three questions. Where are you? Where are you going? And how can you get there? Yeah. And each manager needs to know that about their team members and have those conversations. Because oftentimes, and this is a little bit different than most in-house departments, but oftentimes you find people who have maybe just gotten a little stuck in their careers. They've been at a place for 10 plus years and they've been doing the same job and they're probably doing it well, but that's probably not the best use yeah. of their skill set anymore and you know that there's somebody coming up the pipeline that can you know take on that challenge at the same time the person in the role may need a new challenge and so whether that's at this company or elsewhere you need to have those conversations because that's where you get the most effective performance out of everybody and so that's the first point is that structural conversation that everybody needs to have on the mentoring side, you know, we have done two things. One is we've established a mentoring program where we, we actually have people that are both mentors and mentees, and it can actually span, you know, all levels within the organization. And, and it's, diff it's decidedly different than a sponsorship program. You know, we're not asking people to be advocates for, the, for each other. We're asking them to mentor. Yeah. But we also implemented as part of this innovation, we implemented a tool called a micro-rotation program. And so this is something where I can log into this dashboard and I can see any number of different projects, work scopes, you know, anything from as short as five hours to five months of time. And if I'm interested, I, I, can, I can submit my name to that particular assigning attorney and then they can work together on, on that project. That piece is more self-paced, but it also helps people get exposure to different parts of the business, different parts of the legal practice, and it shows us where the talent is flowing throughout the organization. So structural conversations, mentoring program, and then the self-paced micro-rotation program, the three of those things hopefully give people in every, you know, every position in the, in the department a sense of what they're doing currently and what they are capable of doing in the future. It's funny, I, I often talk about as employees feeling valued and feeling like somebody actually genuinely cares about you and the progression of your career. And the better you can do that with your team, the, the more buy-in and of course, the more self-improvement that you see from team members. It sounds like you've got a, um, a solid structure in place to kind of deliver those kind of outcomes. 
Tell me on the operational side of running the legal department, what are the KPIs that you look at and you know, what are the measurables that you ask the team to be focused on from an operational point of view? Sure. No, it starts with a very, what was probably a very unpopular decision about five years ago, but asking people in-house to record their time. Uh, right. I know a lot of, a lot now, of people decided, that, yeah, yeah, a lot of people yeah. decided let's leave the law firm so we don't want to record our time. Now, I don't use it. Our team doesn't use it for billing purposes. And, and we did have to cross the threshold where people assumed we were using it to see how hard they were working. Yep. I know people are working hard, and that's yep. always going to be a bit of a qualitative assessment regardless. But what we use it for is capacity. Where do we yep. have capacity in the system? Where within each team are people spending their time? And how can we make sure that they're getting the best use of their time? And that has led us to other innovations. So, for example, if I look at a commercial team that is spending a lot of its time evaluating lower dollar threshold, more routine commercial contracts, yeah. we start thinking of what's a better way to do that? Because that tends to be more of a routine review. It's something that we can probably develop a process where we can outsource it to uh, an offshore center or someplace where the value of the team that we have can be working on more customizable, complex commercial transactions, those kinds of things. So we measure time, we measure the, you know, where people are spending their time on different types of contract reviews. From an M&A perspective, we, and, and from a litigation perspective, we have something called the inside game which if you think back to that mantra of we know the business better than any outside counsel, we've actually established more uh, of a framework around how we do deals and how we approach litigation where we actually own and control and manage a majority of those processes such that we are increasingly reducing the scope of outside counsel spend. And we're putting it more into places where we need kind of new thinking around new provisions or, you know, you know, where can we get to in the most difficult negotiated positions? But increasingly, that creates a savings for the company, both on the M&A transactions, on the litigation. If you think about a classic employee litigation matter, a lot of the discovery is internal. And so if you have people on your team that can manage that discovery, that can do any sort of internal reviews with people, it's a huge time saving. It's a great talent development model for people in the litigation field. And it's allowing us to track where we're saving dollars for the company. That also allows me to track why it's valuable for me to have X number of people in my department. So when the finance organization says, across the board, we're doing a 5% cut on all departments, I get to go to the CFO and say, actually, what you're going to do is you're going to lose a lot of these other savings that I've generated. So let's keep us where we are. And then we can say, you know, you can create these additional savings. So data is absolutely important in establishing the value of your department when you are a cost center by virtue. Just one other area that, that we measure is in our intellectual property space, we actually monitor the spend we have on patent filings and office submissions. We do them internally and we benchmark that against how those would be if we used outside counsel. And so we use that as a savings measure as well. So it's interesting actually, so that being armed with the data is in relation to what your in-house attorneys are doing. So then when you do get asked about a cost reduction, you can actually point to the data and say, well, if we did that, if we lost, let's say headcount, these are the activities that we would have to outsource and this is what it would cost. That's the kind of analysis, is it? 
That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. Right, right. Tell me about the pressure on costs generally. I mean, obviously, outside counsel is a typically a large one. Is that a, is that a measurable which uh, you and the legal department is accountable for? You know, the budgeting, making sure that your external and any other costs are maintained. Tell me a little bit about how yeah. that, you know, the pressure you might be under and, and the kind of strategies that, that, that you adopt to ensure that you're um, delivering on those kind of measurables. Yeah, so absolutely, like every other function, you know, we are subject to, you know, budget pressures. And in no end of year conversation with my CFO have I ever been told we're going to get more money. (laughs) Those Um, those words haven't been, that's right, those words have never been uttered. Okay. (laughs) Right, right. So doing more with less is sort of always a given. And so we push for efficiencies within our own model. And sometimes we can turn those into creative solutions. So, for example, for the last three years, we have held a hackathon every year right. in the legal department, and it's it's been decidedly like, what are some ways we can drive more efficiencies through what we do? And we have developed some great cost savers as a result. Deciding how we can manage and organize our subsidiary structure has actually had a cost savings yep. benefit through that hackathon. Or a, a legal repository of all of our documents has actually been a cost savings through that hackathon. So there are things like that that are internal and you kind of push for accountability within your own department for creating those cost savings measures. But the other ones that we do, you know, we look at our outside counsel spend, we look for creative uh, solutions with counsel. Sometimes they're fixed fee arrangements, sometimes they're contingency fees, and and sometimes we're basically looking at what we have spent and we're trying to understand where we can get further reductions here and there. But as you can imagine, we also don't control the number of yeah, lawsuits of that come against the company. Or if, you know, from a strategic direction perspective, we decide to acquire another company or take on another financing transaction, those all cost time, you know, both time and money that we didn't factor into our budget. And so there's obviously a a dynamic with the finance group about, you know, where are we spending our dollars and how are we protecting the company in doing so? So I've never felt so constrained that I couldn't adequately protect the company, its people or its assets, but it's a, a delicate dance between managing outside counsel spend and managing what you do yep. internally. You know, the conversation about talent has to be a conversation that flows through the organization. And do you have the right people in the right roles at the right time? Or are there people that are maybe higher cost than the role warrants? And how do you think about that from a talent perspective? Do you have somebody that's knocking on the door for that role and and is probably more you know, high potential and, and that's the way you need to go? So there are puts and takes in terms of how you manage the organization. But by and large, we very much try to be as transparent, you know, with the team members as possible and create the sense that if we do this well, if we track our time the right way and manage the resources we have the right way and create our efficiencies through some of the measures I described, we should be okay. And and that sort of instills a sense of accountability, but also innovation within yep. the legal department. Yep. And I think it's five or six years since since you brought the timekeeping in. What about now? How do the in-house team look at it now? Is it just part of what we do and, and you know recognizing the value it delivers, or is it still a bit of a, a bit painful? No, I think I think part of it you have to you have to convince people that it's worth yeah. doing. And and so the early days there were a lot of conversations, a lot of metrics that we showed people. 
about why we're doing what we're doing, but more importantly, when you show them the innovation that comes yeah. out of it. A, a great example being one of our teams is our financial services group. They recognized that their team members were spending a lot of time on lower volume, more routine contracts. So they created these annotated guides that they could give the sales team. And as a result, they reduced a lot of that yeah. low volume contract work. And so every one of us wants to be thinking about our roles in a creative way, doing the more customizable deals, doing the things that are more exciting, branching into new regulatory markets from a financial services perspective, et cetera. And when the team sees the ability to do that based on this data, you know, that resonates with them. When they see people through a capacity model developing, you know, if I'm sitting with my team and saying, well, I need so-and-so to be doing more different types of contracts or different types of you know, supply chain reviews because they haven't gotten there yet in their career, team members recognize that this is a tool for development. It's not a tool for you know, detecting who, who here yep. isn't billing or you know, tracking time at a certain number of hours per week. That doesn't really resonate because we don't have anywhere to, yep. to bill. Yep. You know, I, I want to make sure that people are doing what they need to do and what they're capable of doing rather than sort of being stuck in one role for too long and not maximizing their potential. Yeah, and I would think that kind of institutionalizing the ability to deliver higher value work to your talented people or to, 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 to all your people, that's what you want to be doing. That's what people yeah, get driven by. Very much so. There's no point being busy on the mundane or you know the high volume low value kind of stuff nobody really wants to be focused on that so i think if right. you as i said you can institutionalize a program which actually gets you out of that into the high value work that sounds like you're going to deliver on more productive and happy employees right fantastic i've read quite a lot about hp's foray into virtual reality can you tell us a little bit about that because a bit of a lighter note but it's a it's of interest and in whether or not that's impacted too on the legal department yeah, no, it's actually, so it's interesting. This started, I'd say in the fall of, or the summer of 2019, back to the conversation about budgets, you know, one of the things I value the most in my role is being able to see as many team members around the world as possible. And not just me seeing them, but pockets of teams having those face-to-face -face meetings, having a senior leaders meeting once a year, having the ability to get, get together in person as much as possible all of which costs money. There's a lot of travel budget that gets pressed, et cetera. So three or four of us started brainstorming, what are some things we could do in the absence of always needing to travel? And so we invested in some virtual reality headsets and there were about eight of us at the time. And we said, you know, let's just start seeing if we can do stuff in virtual reality that works. And, you know, one member was in Singapore, one was in Germany, one was in California, two were on the East Coast, I was in Texas. So we were very you know, spread out. And so we would get together in virtual reality and just start brainstorming and, and building different rooms where we could you know, create a conference room setting and think about a, a more casual setting and, and things like that. And then when the pandemic hit, we actually were fairly deep into our pilot program right. and suddenly it made a lot of sense. And then we you know, rolled out, I think, up to 40 more headsets around the world for people. And now we were having large gatherings. They're not super spreader events in virtual reality. Yep. You know, large gatherings of people in simulated HPE conference rooms. We, could, we actually worked on an acquisition where the team 
spent some time in a virtual reality conference room whiteboarding open issues and tasking each other with, okay, here's what's left to do, almost as if you were sitting in a real conference room on a daily basis during a deal. And none of them were next to each other. And then we got to a point where Zoom fatigue started to happen. Yeah. Yeah, we're, know, all and, and a, we're all there now. We're all there now. Yeah, it's a, yeah. <laughs> it's a really, it's a real thing. And so, yeah. one of the nice things about virtual reality is you are fully engaged in that mode. You're not also simultaneously checking your email. You're not simultaneously on your phone. You're in that in-person virtual meeting, and so it's really resonated with the team. We've now got, I think, a hundred people in the legal department. Wow. We're about we're about 260 to 270 people. We've got about 100 people in VR and we're trying to roll out more as possible. And look, I don't it'll never replace in person, but I love the idea of we've held we had a holiday party in VR in December where you know we were doing virtual snowball fights and uh, I was going I was, to ask whether whether you were creating more virtual realities and conference rooms. I'm thinking that there must yeah. be a beach somewhere here or there must be. Oh a yeah, bar there somewhere. there are a lot of there are a lot of places we've created that are just hangouts and yep. you know it, uh, you know at a time when there are such lockdowns around the world, the ability to sit in a virtual reality room with uh, team member from India, shake their hand in virtual reality and talk to them as if you're looking at them. And the avatars have gotten much better yep. and the technology is improving every day. It won't ever replace in person, but it has certainly given us a reprieve from Zoom fatigue and at no cost because we don't have to travel anywhere. And so it's it's kind of been fun to see what we do with it. We are continuing to launch more varieties of use here. And it won't be for everybody. And not everybody will find this to be a compelling use of their time, but it's certainly something that we want people to try. And we, you know, each of the legal department groups have at least one or two people with the headsets, and they have been trying to leverage them to see you know what works what doesn't work and, and if it can stick yeah well i certainly haven't heard of it yet amongst any other legal department so you're going to be an interesting test or case study <laughs> i think Rishi. there's a you know there's a lot i know inclusion and diversity is so top of mind for so many of us yeah. and there's a lot that we are trying to pilot through virtual reality in that very fashion imagine if you were in a role-playing setting where you, myself, and several of our team members were sitting around a room in virtual reality, and we were each given a different script. And, and say my script was that every time, I, every time you spoke, I would completely ignore you. And no one was actually going to pay attention to what you said, but every time you had an idea, if I repeated it, and everybody said, that's a great idea, Rishi, how does that make you feel? And, yep. and what are the kinds of things that we can learn from the microaggressions, from the unconscious biases, in a framework or in a setting where we have sort of eliminated some of the biases by being in, in one common platform through virtual reality. So doing things like that are also sort of, we're testing the boundaries of what we can do, but certainly trying to see where it takes us. It's funny, that that's a segue. I, I was going to then move to, because again, I've read quite a bit about HPE and your personal commitment to diversity and inclusion. And tell us a little bit about how that's steps that you've taken internally. I would not have called or guessed that you're doing that by by means of VR. So that's a great example. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, and I don't know how you came up with that, but, but I'd love to hear a bit more about that and, and, and perhaps sure. some of the other initiatives that you have in. Yeah. I mean, when I took on this role, I was very mindful of the fact that there are not a lot of general counsel that look like me. And for those of you on the podcast as an Asian American, I have not seen a lot of 
people in the legal profession in this country that look like me. And, and I'm not different from other uh, minority groups around the country. And so, you know, it's been a very top of mind issue for me that we foster a completely unconditionally inclusive environment. That does not mean anybody gets excluded, but it means everybody's included. And so we have we have an inclusion and diversity committee, and you note I purposely start with I versus D. It's inclusion yeah, yeah, and diversity. You know, we have a committee within the legal department, and we we do various things. We've been doing roundtable discussions within each site, sort of when we were all in offices, and now we do them via Zoom or other video formats. But roundtable discussions within each site around key topics of the day, sort of to foster ongoing dialogue. We do an inclusion everyday series where we profile different team members and what inclusion means to them. And early on, I thought it was important that we include the voice of a white male, you know? So this isn't just going to focus on minority groups. It's going to focus on everybody and what inclusion means to everybody. We've been, as a leadership team, we've been putting out video segments on anti-racism and allyship and microaggressions. And then annually we hold, which we'll be holding our first one this summer, you know, two to three hour forum where we can have breakout sessions, where we talk about what we're doing as a team to create psychological safety across the organization. I need people to feel safe that they can be their best selves in my department. And so it it starts with the people you have today. It starts with the environment you create, but then you've got to foster an inclusive pipeline. So you've got to have, you know, we have rules in place. We have a Mansfield rule or a Rooney rule, and we have a diverse slate of interviewers for every candidate that we interview. And then you have to make sure that you, you know, you make your law firms walk the talk. And so you measure what is the level of diversity on HPE matters from this firm. You know, I I know that they're all going to give me their statistics on how very diverse they are. But what about the matters that we're working on by attorney, by paralegal, by hour? Because it matters to us that the people who are representing us also value those things. So a lot of things that we're, you know, we're, we're trying to attack it from a number of different angles. But I think first and foremost, it starts with the people you have today and how safe do they feel voicing these issues? How safe do they feel being themselves? And and how sure are we that we can at least raise visibility as much as possible to things that are so many unconscious biases in the workforce? The fact that it's not only an internal issue, but it's an initiative also with your law firms, with your trusted partners, it sounds like it really goes down to the matter level, a timesheet level, and that you're asking your firms to deliver the data to demonstrate Mm -hmm. that diverse teams are so, so is that through an e-billing platform or a, how does that actually work? How do you actually, because that's, that, that's always a bit of a challenge. Uh, it is. And in fact, you know, we started it from scratch about 12 months ago where we just said, here are the questions we would want law firms to answer. And then they submitted their answers. And then we sort of cobbled that together into some sort of metric that we could look at. Yep. And then we realized that we can't really replicate that that model through spreadsheets and, you know, just asking our relationship yep. partners once a quarter, it needed to be where the e-billing sits, where the the fabric of the law firm vendor and the company e-billing system operate together. And so okay. we involved our legal operations team. They created the questions into more of a, you know, this goes out every time they send out the bills. It goes out every quarter. They come back with information. We get then it's part of a dashboard that I'd see. I see a dashboard sort of scorecard for every firm that we work with. And it's all of the diversity metrics that we've just talked about. It's accuracy of forecasting, timeliness, 
of uh, billing, those kinds of things. So I can actually rank the law firms based on a number of metrics and then have conversations with them because the answer, you know, what do you do with the data? Yep. For me, it's an important conversation that I have with firms when I say, listen, you know, of the top 15 firms that we work with, you were 15th in terms of overall diversity on representation for our matters. And that that is a measure that I'm looking at when I think about who my yeah. next outside counsel is going to be for something. So, you know, you should think about that as we go forward. And, it, you know, I have not yet come all the way. Certain companies I know, certain departments have gone to either we will automatically reduce your fees or we will claw yep. back funds. I just because we are so early in this process from our own perspective, I haven't been a, I haven't gotten comfortable with that model because I want to make sure that I'm making an impact with these firms. And I feel like the best way to do that is through this sort of, you know, show me the data and I'll show you how that gets rewarded through yep. more work with us or how you can actually not work with us if we don't see improvements in the data. Right. So tell me too, you know, you, you, you'll have your, let's say your panel firms and you'll also have those firms that are looking for a way to get in to HPE and think they can deliver value. What would you say to the existing firms that keep doing and stop doing? And then I'd like to know, those firms that are knocking on the door that'd love to be given a shot at, at HPE and servicing you know, the legal department there, what would you say to those firms? What can they be doing to perhaps be given a shot? Yeah, that's a great question. For all those law so firm think, partners listening out there. I know, I know. <laughs> you know, I think for existing firms, the the benefit of having that experience of working with us is really trusting that we we have a model in place. And I mentioned the phrase inside game. We have a yep. model in place where we tend to manage more of our matters ourselves and we work very targetedly with outside counsel on things. So for those existing firms, you know, obviously you've gotten used to our model and we work well together. So keep doing what you do well with us, but understanding that when we make, you know, decisions or requests about diversity or, you know, forecasting or anything like that, we're doing so recognizing that we want to see very, you know, immediate improvements as much as possible yeah. and show us that you're committed to the same principles we are. For those firms looking for an opportunity, I think the the most impactful way to show me and show our team that, that you're capable is when we have, you know, issues, you know, show us, show us what your capabilities are, not just in terms of, well, you know, we have a, a department of very talented attorneys that can hand, handle those issues, but you know, tell us what's unique about how you've done that, or tell us where you think you are differentiated from your own peers, and why in particular for this matter. You know, would it be a particular, you know, lawsuit where you have a particular skill set in this district or in this type of case? And, you know, show us with some differentiation what you think yeah. you can deliver. Because it will be very hard to differentiate and sort of pull yourself into that conversation. But I will say that, you know, I have been more inclined of late to give that chance to firms where they can showcase more diversity of representation yeah. than than others, because I think that is an uh, that is an opportunity to leverage. You know, the legal industry has been so woefully behind in creating and in sustaining diversity that where we have it, I think we need to celebrate it and, and try as much as we can to sustain it. Yeah. Just recently, I, I interviewed 
Leslie Davis, and she's the new CEO at NAMWOLF, mm. uh, the National Association of Minority and Women-Owned Law Firms, and raising the profile of those firms and given, and that's her mission, of course, now she's been a litigator for the last 20 plus years, and now has moved on to the CEO role of NAMWOLF, and, actually, and you know, precisely her mission, and NAMWOLF's mission to, to raise the pro- profile of those firms, to be given more opportunities, a general counsel like yourself. Uh, no doubt, Rishi. So, uh, and certainly from what we are here, what I'm hearing is that there are more and more general counsel are looking for ways in which they can identify opportunities for diverse owned firms um, and bring them into the fold. So that's that's a fantastic initiative. What's the hardest thing you've ever done, Rishi? Hmm. <laughs> hardest thing I've ever done is actually push myself to find balance in, between work and, and what I do outside of work. And, and I will say that I didn't do it myself. When our children, I've got three kids, when they were very young. Shout out to the kids, how, how yeah. old? Uh, so they're 20, 18, and 16. So sophomore in college, a senior in high school, and a sophomore in high school. You're almost um, there, Rishi. I know, on. It's I only know. a few years ago, you're almost there. <laughs> You know, early in my career, and, and as most lawyers will attest, I mean, that is when you are, we talk, we joked about it, you know, you're never sleeping, you're always yeah. working late hours and things like that. And, you know, I remember my wife really instilled in me that, you know, the people you work for are at home and, and no one was ever, you know, no one ever thought later in their years, gosh, I wish I had just worked more. Worked a little uh, bit harder. That's right. Yeah. And, and so really the hardest thing for me was being in roles where I had to extricate myself. And this was a lot of it pre a lot of technological advances, but come home for bath time and bedtime stories and, and dinner with the family, and then either go back to the office or log back in from home and do that on a regular enough basis where my kids never missed me, um, even though I may have, you know, had to reschedule things or juggle things around. And, you know, there are times when you're in an industry where you feel as though you're, it's that fear of missing out. What am I missing if I have to leave a little early and I have to be out of pocket for these types of things? And will that ultimately reflect poorly on me? Will I lose out on, you know, great projects, great opportunities as a result? And, you know, happy to say that that didn't happen. It might have happened, but I don't have any regrets because, you know, I've got three children that I'm very close with. We, as much as we can, we still get together and have dinner together and interrupt each other and tell each other funny stories. And all of that started all those years ago when I made a commitment to that balance. But, But that is probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my career. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one and credit to you getting that balance right. I'm not sure if it's ever a real balance. It's soft. I call it a True. kind of a bit of a trade-off. There's yeah. always a trade-off. That's a better word. That's a better word. But if you can do it in a way which you're obviously you're achieving your personal and professional goal or your professional goals and you're raising a well-balanced family, it doesn't really get much better than that. Mm. So one last question. Sure. Advice that you'd give to your 25-year-old self. And this might touch back on the balance that we've talked about. Yeah. Uh, looking back now. Yeah. So, you know, I think it is that, you know, um, no matter what you do, find a way to establish some sort of balance in your career. But I would also say two other things. One is be bold, go for the harder opportunities and challenges and be prepared to fail fast, learn and improve. Yeah. I think yeah. that has been the best experiences I've had have been when I've just tried as hard as I could on something incredibly hard failed maybe for the first time and then learned and then really got a lot of experience out of it. 
And then finally, you know, be a force for good in your community. I think all too often we think of that divergent path in law school of those who went to a law firm or those who went to do something, uh, you know, nonprofit. And it doesn't have to yeah. be that way. You know, so yeah. many, if you think back to maybe at least in this country, in the United States, you know, in the 50s and 60s, so many people that went to law school wanted to do that because they wanted to be a force for good and, yeah. and change laws, change the way people were treated in this country. And so it doesn't have to be any different now. And so it's a commitment I have today. And I would tell myself, you know, 25 year old self that uh, I'd want to do it even earlier than I started. And double down on that. Yeah. Rishi Varma, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much for, for making the time. I've had a blast. Thank you for having me, Jim. This was really fun. Fantastic. See you later. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you. Thank you listeners for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.